As I was sitting here just, whoa, as I was sitting here just now, I um, remembered the first time that I heard Joseph Goldstein, who many of us share as a kind of root insight meditation teacher, a person who in some ways ignited this great um, love of the, of the Dharma, the great joy that comes from... Uh, from hearing truth. I think it's one of the ways that we experience love in our life is, uh, is the, uh, the love of truth. And I was remembering the, the first night when Joseph Goldstein talked about, the, in some ways, the subject that you were involved in this afternoon. He talked about the, the truth of, of dukkha, of the unsatisfactoriness that accompanies everybody's life, no matter how happy you are, <laughs> no matter what conditions you're in. And, and he talked, then he went on to talk about the cause of that, and Deborah did as well last night, and, and then about the possibility of the end of the, the contentiousness that we tend to have with reality, and, and the possibility of a great sense of freedom. And he was shining such a bright light on the inherent difficulties of life that I started just to, to bawl. I just started to weep. But I was weeping because I was so happy. Somebody was saying it. Somebody was saying it out loud. And it just led, that was just the beginning, and it is for, for most of us, the realization that the cure for this Pain is turning toward it. As Rumi put it, the cure for pain is in the pain. Good and bad are mixed. If you don't have both, you're not one of us. And uh, that constant reminder that what we turn toward brings um, relief. And what we turn away from seems to, to follow us and chase us thought of another vignette just before that, and hopefully this will lead into the Dharma talk for tonight. <laughs> the, the fun thing about sitting before a Dharma talk is you just get this kind of flood of free association. In other words, I was thinking. <laughs> Somehow, I don't know where people got the idea you shouldn't think. It is... Thinking is to our mind, door of perception called mind, as a sound is to the ear, as a smell is to the nose, as a taste is to the tongue, as a sensation is to the body. Could not be more organic and natural and miraculous. It just causes me joy to think about the fact that we can think and that I can actually share my thoughts and you may even be able to understand them. That's amazing. That's amazing. And hopefully, as we open to the Dharma, the way life actually is, everything, all these prohibitions, all these views about what's right and what's wrong, they just fall away and we see for ourselves, see really clearly what the, what's going on here. What is it that makes us fall into states of fixation and contraction and suffering and compound them? And, and what is it that eases our hearts and, and lets us feel free in this very life, in this very moment. What happens? So the vignette that I was thinking of second, and again it was partly in reflecting what you had been involved in this afternoon about ways that dukkha had been a cause of, of healing or awakening. I was about two months into a three-month meditation period and used to do quite a number of those at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And I was in my uh, early 20s, mid-20s. And so I was a little bit more footloose and wasn't, was, was not yet a, a parent, a husband, a householder, all of that were, wasn't quite as easy to take long practice periods away. So I had time to really immerse myself in the silence and in that process of going in and in and in. And when I say going in, it's just that the power of mind gets so strong that the world becomes more and more deconstructed. 
you just see moment to moment how things are happening, how things are coming into existence, and how things are, are passing away. But at the same time, the, the quieter one becomes, the more deconstructed the world gets, a parallel process also occurs. It's, all, it's quite workable, but it's, it's startling in that, that you begin to equally feel very young, regressed. And there was a point in this, you know, two months into this practice period where not only was I, did I have more strength of mind to be able to accommodate things, but I was also like a one-year-old baby. And I happened to have the, the both good and challenging fortune of, of doing most of my practice in a room that was about seven feet wide and about 10 feet or 11 feet or 12 feet long. It's a little room, had no closet, had a little hanging, a little bar on the side of the wall where, where what I thought was way too many clothes that I brought with me were hanging on, the, on this rack. And then I brought with me all this other accoutrement that would, uh, that would support me on my, on my journey. And I was doing most of my sitting, in fact, all of my sitting on a foam mattress and a Zafu put on there. And, and I had a bunch of pillows. So I was sitting very, you know, continuously in my room and actually doing walking in the room too. So I was, so I was very solitary. And in this more regressed state, it's sunny, I'm starting to feel it as I talk about it everything started to seem uh, scary to me. Everything started to feel painful to me. It's as though everything that I saw or heard or smelled or tasted or felt, felt invasive, like my senses were being impinged upon. And I felt so raw. And I, I looked around my room and... I looked, as I had before, at all the stuff that was in the room. And meanwhile, I had been sitting in this room with what I thought was too much stuff. I had this judgment brewing. God, you're so, you're so greedy. And I, I would, um, in the Buddha's teachings, and I don't know if others have talked about this, but they, they include a, a, a list of the common character types of human beings. And the common character types reflect the three uh, common, what are called the three common poisons or defilements that tend to, when they are present in our experience, tend to make us suffer or feel dissatisfied or feel like, I can't be happy now. And each of us is dominated a little bit by one, a little more by one than the other. And I would characterize myself as a greed type. When the going gets tough, I go, you know, shopping or <laughs> I go, I think about what I can get. And the funny thing is about being a, a teacher, the way it expresses itself as a teacher is not, not I don't want anything, I want to share everything. It's like have this, it causes a kind of exuberance. And so then there's the, there's the greed type, there's the aversive type, and then there's the deluded type. So I don't want to get involved in, in all of the types tonight, but I had characterized myself, I had recognized that I was a bit of a greed type, but I had a, a little bit of a judgment of it. And I was sitting in the room, so raw, so open, and feeling so affected by everything around me that I knew in a moment that I needed to be held. I needed to be held in the worst way. You talked about needing to be touched this morning. And there was obviously no one to hold me in this little solitary room. So I, I rolled off my zafu onto, my, onto the mattress, took all the pillows, and I wrapped myself in them and held myself and just started to weep and weep and weep. And 
from that place of this kind of discharge, this kind of open-heartedness, I looked around the room and I noticed the same stuff, but I had a realization. And the realization was that all that stuff was the way that I had been trying to hold myself. And from that day forth, that moment, there was a a crack. And in came this intense feeling of self-compassion that has not left to this day. And it took, it took the power of mind, the power of concentration, being fully one-pointed in that moment for mindfulness. Mindfulness came in and discerned that situation in a way that if I was just If I was just concentrated, absorbed in that feeling, it would have been one thing. But because of the presence of mindful attention, there was a kind of insight. And the mixture of the wisdom of seeing of how I had been trying to hold myself, it it opened my heart. And then I, after that, everybody I saw and everything about myself I saw, everything that I do to try to bring relief, even the things that caused me suffering. I saw that came out of, they all came out of love for myself. All came out of an attempt to self-soothe. And so the tendency to blame myself for something that I innocently and ignorantly would try to, um, you know, would try to do, it, it just started to loosen a little bit. So this is just one example of where seeing dukkha, seeing that, having my own experience of of um, of suffering, became the cause of of the the happiness of the embrace of self-compassion, which we've been talking about. And there's a joy in that. There's a joy in knowing that I that I that I have my back in a way. And that gesture of it's okay, or you, do, you did the best you could, it, it's, it's built into us. And so if you don't have it now, you'll, you can have it. But hopefully you will see over and over again that, um, as my friend Wes says, you're not your fault. <laughs> you are, you are, what your experience is is the fruit of all that you have been, all that you've done knowingly and unknowingly. Most of the patterns set in motion long before you knew what was going on. And so the Buddha went through a very similar process of insight. And he, the 45 years that he then later taught came out of, was born of his direct experience. It wasn't as though he had a little idea in his mind and he sat down and started writing. He was just like us, just like me in that little, in that little cubicle. He was a human being, exactly like us, who was um, part of a, a culture. He was actually struggling with the culture. It's, I think it's really important that we know that the Buddha's teachings emerged as a kind of radical uh, reaction to the uh, injustice of the caste system, of having the, the fact that some had more privilege than others, some had more access to, to comforts, pleasure, and there were those who were treated poorly just by virtue of their caste and their, their birth. And he saw the absurdity of it. And that was mixed in with being born into tremendous privilege, as many of us are relative to the rest of the world. So it wasn't just some yogi that became interested in, in Dharma. It was someone who had to live a life in a world where things were a little bit confusing and, and not so easy to, to decipher why there were these inequities uh, and why 
did people seem, why did he feel so restless, agitated? And he had everything. He had, he was able to just name, name that sense pleasure and, and go for it. And he could, there was, it seemed to be relative to everybody else, no limit to how much fun he could have. So it's very much like the, our, um, our world that we live in relative to many places in this world. And he was, yet he had so much desire, like all of us, he had the same longing for relief that all of us have. A shared desire to be happy. James asked how many of us want to be happy. Everybody in the room, right? He had the exact same desire. But in the process of his, his discerning his life circumstances, his mind gave rise to that one desire. I call it a holy longing. That one desire that no other desire can fulfill. The desire to, to know the highest happiness or peace. But he started out by seeing um, that, um, like most of us, he, his eyes opened up and he saw, as part of his understanding of, of dukkha, of that this world, if you're born into this world, definition of birth, it's the leading cause of having things that are difficult to, to deal with. Leading cause of sickness, leading cause of aging, leading cause of you know, old age, dying, death, not getting what you want all the time and not wanting what you get, being separated from what you love, um, having to deal with the, with the constant um, impact of senses, having to get up every day and have, do it again, all that it takes to, to do our to do our lives. And he began to, to really take a look at that. And he said, well, I'm going to get old and I'm going to get sick and I'm going to die. That's going to happen to me. And how do I deal with that? Basically what I'm told, and Deborah alluded to this, I'm told to, to just um, keep satisfying, just keep finding things that are pleasurable. And the more he did that, the more he says, why if I'm subject to birth, sickness, old age, and death, why should I seek out that which is also unreliable, that which won't, won't give me lasting happiness? And he began to see that there was a little bit of a problem with so much devotion, so much of our orientation, so much of the orientation of our identity around seeking pleasures of the senses. And it, later on in his teachings, he, he said there's basically three things we need to know about the world of, of pleasure. And one there is enormous pleasure to be had in this world. There is pleasure in, I'm feeling the pleasure of being with you right now. The pleasure of good company. The pleasure of solitude. There's the pleasure of seeing beautiful things. The pleasure of hearing beautiful sounds, of smelling smells, tasting the food at Spirit Rock. There's just enormous capacity that we have for pleasure. And we need to know that pleasure. That was his, he said there are three things you need to know. You need to know the pleasure. He also said that you need to know its defects or its dangers. And what the dangers are that he discovered just through that bringing his attention to the things as he found them, he saw that their danger is that they are short-lived. 
The pleasures of this world are short-lived. And if we devote ourselves, if we associate our well-being with satisfying, just satisfying our sense pleasures, satisfying our hunger for sense pleasures, we experience their pleasure, but that pleasure passes away very quickly and it leaves in its wake a feeling of loss, a feeling of dissatisfaction, and also leaves in its wake a seed, like planting a seed. You're you're training your attention to want more. And because the world of of sense pleasures is often associated with pleasure when we think about them and when we desire things, we also, in that process of seeking out those pleasures, fail to, un- fail to feel, fail to fully grok that the state of wanting, the state of waiting, the state of hoping, the state of prior to satisfying a hunger is a state of distress. It's a state of tension. It's a state of, of what I call suspended happiness. And it colors the present moment with a perception, a feeling that I cannot find happiness and relief right here. I can't find it now. That I need something to make me happy. As the as one teacher named Sri Nisargadatta put it, if I can find it, he says, as long as we think we need something to be happy, we also must believe that in, it, in its absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. I know it's here. There it is. So in this way, seeking pleasure is a distraction. For it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy, when in reality it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as there's nothing wrong with me or this moment. I have nothing to worry about. Check it out right now. When you are here, as we've been calling ourselves here for this whole time, when you're here and you're not looking ahead, and you're not looking back, remembering the last pleasurable moment. When you're just here, do you have anything to worry about? Is there anything missing? Anything lacking? What is your experience after your last desire was fulfilled and before the next one comes up in your mind? Anybody willing to say? What's your experience when you're just here? Contentment. What's that? Contentment. Contentment. So you, you start to think about your, your baby, yes. Then away from being here. Yeah. So we, and we enter into time, and we enter into our, the need for our baby. It's completely understandable as a mother. But nevertheless, we often, we, don't, we miss the fact, we deprive ourselves of the fact of that there is this ever-present happiness and well-being or contentment 
without going anywhere. After all, the purpose of practice is to reach a point where with this conviction that there is, I have nothing to worry about, there's nothing wrong with me or this moment, this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual ever-present experience. Which experience? The experience of being open, empty, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It's like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in this openness. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. So as beautiful as the pleasures of this world are, our addiction to them often deprives us of, obscures this natural happiness of being conscious. As that same teacher said, all search for happiness is misery. The only happiness worth that name is the natural happiness of being awake, conscious. So the Buddha began to see that there is a danger and is, and. Uh, I thought this danger was beautifully expressed by the uh, Zen master Suzuki Roshi where he said renunciation because you could think, oh, I bet I have to give up sense pleasures. Of course not. If we wouldn't have these senses, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, if the sense world was not meant to be enjoyed and taken in And those who don't have sense pleasures, they fail to thrive. It's just like not being hugged. But he said, renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but an understanding that they fade away, that they are not a reliable refuge for our sense of well-being and happiness. And in fact, tend to Uh, block our way to a source of real joy unless we have that understanding. Because what happens when our mind is in a state of, of hunger, in a state of thirst, it's the Buddha called this hunger or thirst, he called it tanha, craving. And Tanha is also translated as unslakeable thirst. It's not possible to satisfy it. And just like me with all my stuff in the, those early days of practice, I was trying to deal with being human. We're all trying to deal with being human. And the Buddha said, it's tough here. It's hard to bear. And the prescription for dealing with it is open to it, welcome it, as we've been doing throughout this retreat. But he said what turns that difficult, the challenges of life, the things that are hard to bear, the stresses, into mental suffering is what uh, Deborah spoke about last night, is this craving, this chronic desire for things to be different than the way they are that expresses itself as a, as a um, desire for pleasures, sense pleasures. Also it expresses itself as desi- a desire for things to stop. A desire, it's called uh, desire for non-becoming. And in, at its extreme, it's the suicidal ideation. It's a form of craving. The next way it expresses itself is the desire for becoming. So our mind aimed in a pretty constant way toward, and it's all in our mind. Funny thing is, we never really go anywhere. 
isn't it true that we have always been exactly where we are? We've always been in the here and now. That's all there is. There's no past. It's just an idea called memory. There's no future. That's just another idea of experience that is possible or unborn, worrisome. There's really only this. But in this state of what's called bhava or becoming, our mind is in a state of of moving, creating an experience, and it's all imaginary, of somebody who's come from the past, who's moving through here on my way there. And there is where I will succeed or fail, or get what I want, or get rid of what I don't want. And you've probably noticed it on the retreat. Both it's the desire to get rid of and the desire to have. You've, how many of you... Uh, no, you don't have to tell me. <laughs> how many of you have had what we classically call the Vipassana romance? Thank you for your honesty. Someone, and it's so quick and so innocent, someone you see, this is how the process of bhava starts, this process of becoming. Someone you see, they enter your door of perception called the eye, and that door of perception lights up. You see that person, and that particular time you see them, it has, uh, because of your own individual conditioning, it has pleasant, fe- pleasant feeling arises. And everybody is conditioned differently. So one person may give rise, it may, seeing that same person, they may feel pleasant. Other, somebody might not feel the same kind of pleasantness. But that, that moment of contact brought a pleasant feeling. Of course, if you were to just notice, oh, that's a pleasant feeling. At that moment, mindfulness has this incredible power to just cut the whole chain. The whole, the the drama doesn't start, the drama doesn't continue. But if that little moment of pleasure goes unnoticed, it spawns a a little reaction called liking. And liking starts being followed by wanting. And wanting creates this, as I said before, the underlying experience of wanting is a bit of tension. And that tension then generates what we call papancha, tanha papancha. This proliferation of fantasy where that person all of a sudden becomes the secret to your happiness. (laughs) This is uh, so beautifully, this tanha papancha It's so beautifully expressed in this relatively long poem that I'd like to share with you from a poet named George Bilger. And fortunately, George, and fortunately you, as you notice your mind leaning in this way, the more this meets the the light of attention, the more you can, the more you see it with a little more space, the more you can laugh about it, as George Bilger does at his own papancha. And this poem is entitled, Unwise Purchases. (laughs) They sit around the house not doing much of anything, the boxed set of the complete works of Verdi unopened, the complete Proust unread, the French cut silk shirts which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French cut silk shirt. (laughs) The reflector telescope I thought would unlock the mysteries of the heavens, but which I only used once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high-rise down the road, (laughs) and which now sits stares stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, 
where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. (laughs) I like to think that one thing led to another between them and that by tape six or so they're happily married (laughs) and raising a bilingual child in Seville or Terre Haute. But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I've constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias. And I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes on on the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set. A woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming has always dreamed of meeting. And while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen fixing up a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. (laughs) Now, isn't it amazing our capacity to do that when really nothing happened? (laughs) And that's the opportunity of our practice to step off the wheel of that endless search and maybe even enjoy that fantasy but know that our real medicine that there is no path to this happiness the path surrounds you every instant and this is what the Buddha began to see you know while I'm on the on the bhava train talking about bhava I th- most fun, two of the most fun passages I ever learned about this, and hopefully by laughing at it, we can and we can see it more with a, see our own version of this as it plays out in our mind. How this tendency to keep toppling forward into this imagined future that seems to never arrive, and to miss the fact that time is always now. So this is from a fellow named Larry Miller who's been, and this is, was attributed to George Carlin, but it's actually a, an actor named Larry Miller. And uh, it's all about aging. Because we have a, how many thoughts have you had about aging? Today, hundreds, hundreds. And then the feelings that go with that. He says, do you realize the only time in our lives when we like to get old is when we're kids? If you're less than 10 years old, you're so excited about aging that you think in fractions. How old are you? I'm four and a half. You're never 36 and a half. You're four and a half going on five. That's the key. You get into your teens, now they can't hold you back. You jump to the next number or even a few ahead. How old are you? I'm going to be 16. You could be 13, but hey, you're going to be 16. And then the greatest day of your life, you become 21. Even the words sound like a ceremony. You become 21, yes. But then you turn 30. (laughs) Ooh, what happened there? Makes you sound like bad milk. He turned. We had to throw him out. There's no fun now. You're just a sour dumpling. What's wrong? What's changed? You become 21, you turn 30, then you're pushing 40. Whoa, put on the brakes. It's all slipping away before you know it. You reach 50 and your dreams are gone. But wait, you make it to 60. You didn't think you would. You become 21, turn 30, push 40, reach 50, and make it to 60. You built up so much speed that you hit 70. (laughs) After that... It's a day-by-day thing. (laughs) You hit Wednesday. (laughs) You get into your 80s, and every day is a complete cycle. You hit lunch, you turn (laughs) forth. You reach bedtime, it doesn't end there. Into your 90s, you start going backwards. 
I was just 92. <laughs> then a strange thing happens. If you make it over 100, you become a little kid again. I'm a hundred and a half. <laughs> May you all make it to a healthy hundred and a half. Little George Carlin. The most unfair thing about life is the way it ends. I mean, life is tough. Takes up a lot of your time. What do you get at the end of it? A death. What's that, a bonus? I think the life cycle is all backwards. This is one way to realize your true nature. You should die first, get it out of the way then live in an old age home. You get kicked out when you're too young, you get a gold watch, you go to work. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. You do drugs, (laughs) alcohol, you party, you get ready for high school. You go to grade school, you become a kid, you play, you have no responsibilities, you become a little baby. You go back into the womb. You spend your last nine months floating in spa-like conditions. Central heating, room service on tap. And can't resist. And you finish off as an orgasm. (laughs) So if we want to end up where we began, we cannot spend our life toppling going out of ourselves in search. And this is what the Buddha realized. And fortunately, and he, he, his holy longing became so strong that he knew if to just keep spinning on that wheel of endless, excuse me, of endless searching and endless waiting for that, that future happiness, um, would be, in his case, because he would have been part of the expansion of his father's lands and so-called kingdom, he, for him, he said it would be like trying to sit, a, like sitting on a bed of coals if there was no peace in his heart. So he felt so much that he wanted to find uh, something much more reliable than just this endless cycle of, um, of suspended happiness. And the fortunate thing after being really moved by the, the reality of sickness, old age, and dying, he, w- he also was moved by seeing the example of someone who was uh, a renunciate, somebody who seemed to be going against the stream of that habitual search for, for the next experience, somebody whose, whose countenance and whose sense of presence seemed so content, so satisfied with, with a kind of simplicity. And that was intriguing. And then, of course, he heard about the people who were teaching about this sort of thing in his life. So he found the best teacher he could find who might be able to give him more uh, information about how to find something more lasting, something more reliable, a deepest kind of happiness. And what he was taught were elements of what we've been doing here for the last several days. He, he was taught the, to gather the attention, which is very scattered, the exact same thing we're doing, to use this quality of mind that we all have that is, um, that is when it, it turns out that when we use it in the service of awakening in the service of meditation that it it gives rise to so many blessings so much joy so much freedom that uh, we partly why it's called an open secret we fail to see that we have this we are so trainable that we have this capacity every single human being in fact the buddha said if it wasn't possible for you to do this i wouldn't ask you to But what we do here and what he was taught is to gather the attention, 
to, and in this case here, we gather it to our body using this quality of aiming of our mind. It's called vitaka. The aiming of our mind. And then once we've connected with the experience that we're attending to, we sustain that connection. We try to stay there. And at first, this quality, because we haven't been doing it in this context, and we haven't been sitting quietly, haven't, been in, haven't had our mind in the same location as our, bo- as our bodies for this much time, our body screams and our mind screams. But if you just keep aiming and sustaining, or gathering gently and sustaining, this gentle movement of bringing, putting our mind in our body and our body in our mind again and again and staying here, it, it produces a kind of comfort, a kind of joy, a kind of rapture, and that sense of one-pointedness. And of course this quality is available to us in any day. I notice right now as I light on different faces in the room, I realize if I, if I connect with you sitting in front of me and I stay there, the longer I do that, I start to feel a certain kind of, and I hope this doesn't make you uncomfortable, I start to feel a, a sense of interest, a certain kind of comfort, a kind of happiness. I enter into this little cosmic bubble. It feels very intimate in a way. So this gathering, depending whether it's a person or, a, or the object of meditation, when you do it long enough, it's like love potion. Mm-hmm. And in the Buddha's case, when he did it, you could say relentlessly, continuously, because his passion for finding something more reliable was so profound. He, he knew the defects of getting caught in that wheel of, of wanting. And so he gave himself entirely to this process of connecting and sustaining. And soon, not only did he experience the the love potion, so to speak, the sense of comfort, he that's called sukha. Remember the Buddha, as James said, the first night was called the happy one, sukhiya. Began to feel happy and began to feel this great rapture and this sense of one-pointedness to the extent that his mind and body became suffused with happiness. Sometimes it's been described as the joy of concentration, of a well-composed and collected mind. Often described as a super-mundane, beyond-the-mundane happiness that comes from a well-collected mind. So many people who come on retreat, just even that first glimpse of when your mind and body come together in harmony, superior to almost any experience you ever had in your whole life. Maybe short-lived, maybe even even soft and not so dramatic, but something so satisfying, so complete, so enough. And not only was the body and mind suffused with this sense of fullness and light, but it was also described later as unmixed happiness. In other words, there was no shadow of any hindrance with a well-connected, well-collected mind, a heart and mind all together, just here. No hindrances at all. I was thinking again of this teacher, Nisargadatta, where he he said that um, when your mind is free, momentarily free, or sustained free of its preoccupations, it becomes quiet. And if you don't disturb that quiet, you stay in it, you'll discover that it's permeated with a light and a love you've never known, but you recognize it at once as your natural state, as your own nature. Once you've tasted that, you'll never be the same person again. But he 
brings the wisdom in here. He says, but the unruly mind will break that peace and obliterate that vision. But some part of it is bound to return if the effort is sustained. But we'll get back to that. Well, what the Buddha, this is maybe the difference between concentration and mindfulness. When the Buddha's mind was so suffused with that unmixed happiness and light, mindfulness, discernment, clear comprehension of this state came in, arose with that, and said, this is really fantastic, (laughs) but this does not last. This is just high-class sense pleasures. And he saw that this was not a reliable place to to rest. He later described this as a a, um, a beautiful thing to train. It creates the power of mind to be able to then see more clearly, as he did. But to look at these states of mind, these states suffused with light as an end in itself, is a kind of delusion. He put, the, he put both the, the elements of the ordinary sense pleasures that most of us enjoy and somehow, sometimes have an unwise relationship with them and these states of concentration, he put them in the category of what he called uh, lokiya sukha, worldly happiness. In other words, happiness, that de- depend, a well-being and happiness that depends on conditions being a certain way. When you've got those conditions, you're great. But when those conditions fade away or change, you don't have it anymore. So if you make, if you aim for that kind of happiness as your main aim, you're happy when you have it and unhappy when you don't. That's not real happiness. So the Buddha realized, okay, this is what's being taught. I'm not, this hasn't made me truly happy. And it's at that point that he experimented with uh, trying to starve himself to liberation, to go to the extreme of self-mortification and self-denial. And all that did was, was diminish his energy, zap his energy and strength, and make his mind very weak. As often any kind of rigid practice even rigid concentration, as I said the first day or the second day or whatever it was, it's very brittle and it will fall apart. It just, it'll exhaust. And, and that really, it also speaks to the wise effort. When we make excessive effort in our practice, it tends to exhaust us and tends to then lead to wanting some pleasure and then feeling averse to what's happening and then restless and agitated, then exhausted and then doubt multiple hindrance attack. So the the self-mortification, the self-denial didn't work. So then um, he, you know, went out on his own and said, you know, I'm just going to sit down. I know I need to take food. Took some food. Remembered a time when he was comfortable. When he, when he, his senses were satisfied to a certain degree young, resting under a tree. And he said, you need some measure of sense pleasure. So he took food and then he sat down. And then he used that power of mind that he had developed. And he, arose, he roused the, the qualities, that gathering and sustaining. And then he entered into these, these states where all those qualities came together and his mind was suffused again with that kind of steadiness and light and unmixed joy of it. But he then, he said, I, I didn't let the joy of it take over. He didn't get caught up in the joy. Instead, he decided, he used the power of mind to do exactly what we've continued to do over the course of the retreat, to put the light on what's happening moment to moment. And when you put that light on what's happening moment to moment, and you keep doing it, James spoke about kanaka samadhi, the the concentration that comes on changing objects. Not only is there concentration that comes, but our mind 
no matter what you notice, it gets brighter and brighter. And I can look around the room now and every person here looks brighter and brighter. The, the Vipassana facelift is starting to take effect. <laughs> and the mind gets brighter and brighter until, in his case, it was shining in its clarity. And he became not just as he paid attention to his body and his moods and his thoughts. Few things he noticed. He noticed that everything he paid attention to was in a constant state of flux. And even the knowing of what he paid attention to, even knowing was coming and going. Everything coming and going, coming and going. But the more that there was this coming and going, the brighter, more luminous the mind became. Until he later he expounded, luminous is this mind, brightly shining. But it gets very much colored by all these different things that come into our life and into our mind. And people who don't cultivate their mind, they don't know this, and they just get caught up in the show. Or just caught up in this kind of dream, dream of the imagined me and, and miss this, this kind of vividness of being present. But then he said, luminous is this mind, brightly shining. And when the mind is brightly shining in this way, it is untouched by whatever it is that comes in. Whatever it is that arises and falls. And the more he saw the way everything rose and fell, he began to experience a a new kind of joy. The joy of being with the same experiences he'd always been with, but without any kind of reactivity. Without any pushing away without any grasping, he experienced the joy of equanimity. And he realized that this is the first taste of freedom. The other two kinds of pleasure and happiness, sense pleasures, happiness of concentration, were um, were Uh, unreliable, unsatisfactory. But this was the first taste of what he called lokutra sukha, unconditional happiness, a well-being that doesn't depend on what's coming into our experience. We begin to taste this a little bit, those moments where it doesn't matter what's going through your mind and you're, you're, you're okay with it. But he knew this was just a taste. But the longer he dwelled in this vipassana happiness, the joy of equanimity, the more he saw that everything is coming and going, the more he saw that everything was coming and going, he saw that those three common characteristics that mark every experience, he said, everything is marked with change. Everything is marked, because it's changing, everything is marked with unreliability, unsatisfactoriness. And everything that is marked with change is also marked with selflessness. It's just, it can't define me. Something that's changing. I'm not defined by these changing conditions. And it's happening all by itself, selflessly. That our whole mind and body is this selfless process coming into being and vanishing. And it's based on conditions not on anybody's will or wish. Not me, not mine. This I am not. And as his mind just rested more and more in this equanimity, unstuck from so much identity with all the changing moods and thoughts and images, his mind began to just relax even more and more until it imploded in a way. And in a flash of insight... he realized that the very reliable refuge, the reliable happiness, the unshakable happiness and peace that he had been searching for was none other than the very nature of his own mind. The path, where did he end up? Here. Awake. Awake. Awakeness 
not affected by ever by whatever one is awake to. And he he let out this song. He said, "Oh, through many births, over and over, I was out wandering. Through many births and the wandering on, I ran again and again, seeking the maker of this house. Oh, house builder." Oh, ego maker. Oh, me and my maker. You've been found. I don't believe you anymore when you build a house. I'm not going to follow you anymore. All the, your ridge poles broken. In other words, the defilements, the confusion. The, the, the rafters broken. The ridge pole destroyed. Ignorance. Confusion. Mind gone to the unconditioned freedom, to cravings, cessation, to the end of that endless searching, it's come. Now that, of course, resolved the, the, the Buddha's issue. It didn't resolve ours. And as James, as Deborah has alluded to, our own version of nirvana, the unconditioned, the unborn, is every moment of being with our life just as it is. And then finding the delight and the joy in both the pleasures, we let them go, the pains, we, we soften around them, let them be, and realize that everything is a changing condition, ungraspable, not me, and we Increasingly, as you're already likely feeling to a degree, increasingly um, feeling the, the natural happiness of being awake. Your own taste of freedom. So I end with the words of Gendon Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher. His spontaneous song called Free and Easy, Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all and has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply allow the entire process to happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, Infinite space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. So make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the, wa- the awakened elephant that's already resting quietly at home in front of your own fireplace. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Everything happens, unfolds of itself. So without changing position, just let yourself take in the simple silence of your own nature. It's home. It's deathless.
be free. Thank you for your attention. So enjoy your timeless walk for 15 minutes. <laughs> and we'll have some, uh, do we do some metta? Yeah, we'll have a little metta and maybe even a little chanting during the next sitting. So please continue. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.